From IndieWire, the voice of creative independence, I'm Michael Schneider. Well, I'm always terrified of any job, and I find 16 reasons not to do them. But it was very hard to find a good reason not to do this because, you know, I did remember the story and I loved the story. Uh, and it was, I loved the tone. I, I, it's, you know, particularly when you can have drama and comedy coexisting in a weird, you're sort of walking a tight tightrope of tone here. I loved that. Stephen Frears, I, you know, made Florence Foster Jenkins with, and I loved him. Russell Davis, who wrote the script, is our greatest TV writer. And uh, so I, I couldn't really wriggle out of it. Hugh Grant has just been nominated for a Golden Globe in the Best Performance by an Actor in a Limited Series or a Motion Picture Made for Television category for his role as disgraced UK politician Jeremy Thorpe on Amazon Prime Video's A Very English Scandal. It's time to turn it on. I want to know what's hot and new on TV. Turn it on, IndieWire's weekly dive into what's new and what's now in TV. This episode, we talk to a very English scandal star, Hugh Grant. Stay close. Hugh Grant returned to television for the first time since the early 1990s in A Very English Scandal, which premiered on Amazon Prime Video this past June. The three-part limited series tells the shocking true story of the first British politician to stand trial for conspiracy and incitement to murder. Thorpe was a closeted gay man in a time when homosexuality had just been decriminalized, but was still a secret no politician could reveal. When his former love, Norman Scott, threatens to reveal their relationship, Thorpe's career is at risk, and he tries to silence him. We could scare him. My friend David, he knows some men. What, to, to rough him up, do you mean? I'm not sure that would work. Norman? We'd be terrified. It's an easy mistake to make. He's effeminate, and therefore we think he's weak. But that man sits in pubs and clubs telling all the world about his homosexuality. No one else does that, Jeremy. No one. Certainly not us. Well, in that case, there's only one thing we can do. Kill him. No, if only we could. No, I mean it. We kill him. We have him killed. That'd be ridiculous. He will destroy me and the party, and my marriage. What if the next person he talks to is a journalist, hmm? For God's sake, Jeremy, we're members of Parliament. We can't sit here and discuss murder. No worse than shooting a sick dog. It's a damn sight worse. I really don't care. I don't care if we shoot him, or we strangle him, or we poison him, or we bludgeon him, or we tie him up in a sack and drop him in the Thames. There is only one way for us to survive. Norman Scott has got to die, so... Hugh Grant was just nominated for a Golden Globe, as was Ben Wishaw, who stars as Norman. And the limited series is also nominated for Best Limited Series. We recently moderated a panel with Grant about the series and what brought him back to TV. But first, a warning, the audio isn't great, but the conversation is, so please enjoy. Do you find that a lot of people come up to you and say, I did not know this story, I can't believe this is true? Uh, well, in England, the under... 
45s say that. Yeah. The over 45s, they, 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 they remember it. it like me, yeah. We all loved it when it was happening. It was like, it was like, <laughs> it was like Monty Python, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you were pretty young when it was going on. Uh, how, how, how much did you pay attention to it? And was it, how riveted were you to the story as it was going on in real time? Yeah, you know, I wasn't that young. I was in my late teens, and uh, the whole, as I said, the whole country was loving it. But I mean, all the teenagers, perhaps more than anyone, because you know, there were these people in three-piece suits who'd been to Eton and Oxford and were very establishment, you know, plotting murders and talking about biting the pillow and Vaseline and uh, and the jokes were incredible. Uh, you know. Join the liberals and widen your circle. I remember that one. <laughs> so you had a time with this. Um, I, I love, and it's obviously based on the book, the novel, that is called A Very English Scandal. Um, what do you make of that title? How, how English is this scandal? Well, uh, yeah, I think it is pretty English. I mean, perhaps mostly because uh, if you imagine a Russian plotting a murder, it would probably go quite well. Or, or, or a Saudi, or, a, or, or, or an American. Uh, you know, the, the mafia, they do a good job. We've all seen Goodfellas. Yeah. But an Englishman, you know, who says to his friend, just find someone to take care of it, will you? And he finds another friend who phones a friend who phones a friend in Wales, and finally they end up with... I can't remember where this episode gets to. It's not, it doesn't get to the bit where he, they actually hire the murderer. Uh, but, you know, he's an he's a out-of-work airline pilot, a sort of drunk, <laughs> who screwed the whole thing up and went to the wrong... Okay, I went back. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> but uh, needless to say... No, so it's English because it's such a failure, really. <laughs> Well, it's, it's done in such a dry way to some degree. It, 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 uh, watching this uh, transported me, and I obviously did not grow up in the UK in the 70s, but yet I felt like I was there. This does a really good job of transporting you to that time. Uh, you know, not just in the hairstyles and, and uh, the cars, and et cetera, but really the mannerism too, just the, the interaction. It's... Uh, you know, talk about transporting to that time, and, and uh, it feels like they got it right. It, certainly we had a very good production designer, and uh, you know, from a personal point of view, that was all uh, fascinating and weird, because there was my childhood. On the, you know, I walk onto the set, and even the loo paper, I, oh yes, Izal, I remember that stuff. Um, uh, and the breakfast cereals and everything, so yes, they, they, they got all that right. But uh, as you also mentioned, there was a manner of being then that just simply doesn't exist anymore. And particularly for Thorpe, who was really a, a creature of the 50s. And in 1950s England, people talked like that. You know, they're still very clipped and very grand. And in Thorpe's case, and very languid as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was interesting to play a part where he's there on YouTube and to, to be able to sort of uh, use that as a resource. But he, that was the distinguishing characteristic, that he was a creature of, of the 50s, suddenly confronted with the 60s and then the 70s, and in part three, again, I don't want to spoil it all for you, 
it all turns on its head. And this guy who went to the best school and the best university and came from the best class and sort of old boy network, suddenly it's not working for him anymore. It's all breaking up. And his gay lover, who you know previously would have been shunted aside as just a bit of riffraff, his outrageous and disgusting stories, is suddenly center stage and being loved and listened to in, in the Central Criminal Court in, in London. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he, he was a great uh, sort of PR man for himself to some degree. Yes, yes. And, and he represented, you know, the result of the sexual revolution and the liberation and, and um, suddenly he's not a revolting little puff as he would have been in the 50s. He's, you know, this colorful, funny character who the public loved. So, so was, was it sort of all the above that drew you to playing Thorpe when, when uh, you, you first sort of considered playing this role? Uh, was it a, a difficult decision or, or were you excited to sort of revisit that world? Well, I'm always terrified of any job and I find 16 reasons not to do them. But it was very hard to find a good reason not to do this because, uh, you know, I did remember the story and I loved the story uh, and it was... I love the tone, I, I, it's, you know, particularly when you can have drama and comedy coexisting in a weird, you're sort of walking a tight tightrope of tone here. I love that. Stephen Frears, I, you know, made Florence Foster Jenkins with, and I loved him. Russell Davis, who wrote the script, is our greatest TV writer, right. and uh, so I, I couldn't really wriggle out of it. It, it uh, I, I mentioned uh, when I introed the, the, the episode that this was your first television project in a good 25 years or so. Was that by design, or did it just sort of work out that way, that this was the project to bring you back to TV? Well, that is true. I, I think I was the last of the snobs about television uh, in terms of... Uh, I, people tell me everyone else has gone back to what they call television, but it's not really telly, is it? It's streaming. I, I've only just worked out how to use this stuff. Uh, <laughs> my seven-year-old daughter teaches me how to use Netflix. So yeah. I, I get it now. I get what it is. It's a hybrid. Yeah. And, and I, I think I'm okay with it. Well, it's... And, and it's true. In, in filming this, you're, you're filming with Stephen, obviously, who you yeah. just worked with uh, on Florence per, uh, Jenkins, like you mentioned. But um, it's episodic... But, but did you feel any different than filming a movie, or did it feel like uh, filming a long form? Well, I complained bitterly that we had no money. And, you know, <laughs> oh, my God, look at my trailer, and really, do we have to go so fast? And where's the set? But I'm told in BBC terms it was lavish. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm very difficult and queenie and grand. <laughs> well, you've earned it, right? Not really. Uh uh, but but nonetheless, uh, it uh, opened up uh, this, this TV world now. Is this something that you want to do more of, more episodic, more... Uh, are, are you looking to do that kind of thing, or...? Well, I, uh, I've been toying with a couple of projects uh, for the last few months, like a cat with a half-dead mouse. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know why I do it to producers. And, and um, anyway, I think I'm about to sign on. Oh. in the next few days uh, for two projects, one of which uh, is a film, but the other one is, is yes, more... I refuse to say television. Uh, <laughs> long form. Long form, yeah, yes. yeah. 
it's it, long form. It sounds more regal to say long form. Yes. Um, well, go, going back to Stephen Frears, because uh, obviously you have developed this relationship. I saw an interview that you did, uh, I forget when, where, where you actually said Stephen Frears would hate some of the movies that I did back in the 90s. Uh, but nonetheless, it seems like you've developed a, a nice shorthand with him. Um, talk about that and, and the kind of filmmaking that he does, uh, this fast-paced sort of uh, film that, that he does. Well, it was, it was always incredibly surprising to me that he ever wanted to work with me because I thought, you know, he, he makes low-budget, slightly left-wing, subversive films with really you know, intense actors who've been in the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. He's not going to want me, from the man from romantic comedies. And yet he was always, I kept meeting, meeting him on planes and at parties, and he was always, and, and actually in politics in the end, and he was always saying, well, we should do something. Well, let's do something. Now, I never thought he would follow through, and then he did. He, he asked me to do Florence Foster Jenkins, and, and that came out very well, and, and then... And then he sent me this. But he's so not what I expected. I expected this man, you know, to be very the great auteur. You know, the French are so boring about Stephen Frears. Every time I've been to France in the last 20 years to do interviews, they say, we love Stephen Frears, he's a great maître en scène. And uh, so I assumed he'd be very hands-on and wanted you know, really dig deep into character and motivation and all these things. And uh, in fact, he's the exact opposite. I, uh, I, when I met him before Florence Foster Jenkins, we had a cup of tea and I brought 20 interesting questions about the character. And to each one, he just said, I don't know, no idea. <laughs> no idea. Oh, I'm just the director, what do I know? Just, just show me. And um, I realize now, having watched him in action, it's, uh, it's very clever uh, because I think a lot of directors, particularly new directors, uh, have their script and then they have a vision of how it's going to be. And then they get very disappointed if that's not what is happening on the set. But Frears just has a sense this is a very interesting script with a great potential. And I think this person might be able to play that part, and that person might be able to play that part and bring something interesting to it. And then he sits there and waits to be entertained. You know, just watches the monitor. And uh, sometimes he doesn't even watch, he just listens. And he's like uh, one of those uh, idiot savants with a perfect uh, ear. You know, ah, that was meant to be a G flat, but it was a G sharp. And he can hear a false note, absolutely a, a, a hundred miles away. And, uh, and we'll say, I don't think that was right, but he, he doesn't necessarily know why. But, uh, yeah, just not what I expected at all. Yeah. And is he usually right, or...? No, he's always right. Yeah. Always right about that. Sometimes not right about the reason. And sometimes just plain grumpy. <laughs> 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 yeah. there, was, there were times on Florence when he, <laughs> he just was too grumpy. And we, we were rehearsing a, a scene, and... I'd been thinking that this scene is impeccable, and I, I really, no human being could act it better than I'm acting this. And he'd, he'd sit there saying, it's bloody boring, it's boring, let's cut the whole scene, let's cut the whole scene, let's cut the whole scene and go home. And, uh, you know, I'd have to say, well, I, I don't think so, Stephen, it's really crucial plot-wise. But I found that if you gave him a piece of cake and a cup of tea, uh, he recovered and quite liked the scene after that. <laughs> 
See, these are the secrets of acting that <laughs> everyone's come to hear. Well, he's in his 70s, and, and he gets low blood sugar level, I think, that's what happens. You, you do your homework, obviously, with <laughs> your colleagues. Yeah. Uh, speaking of colleagues, uh, so, so Ben, who, of course, plays Norman, um, you've worked with so many times now, including on Paddington. So, so you're developing this, this uh, sort of film, film, film trilogy now, I suppose, with him. It's weird. I've spent the last three years trying to either kill or have sex with Ben. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes both at the same time. Yes, but there was, uh, luckily I didn't try to have sex with him in Paddington. That would have been, <laughs> that would have been too much. But uh, a very different film. A yeah, very different. Film. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm lucky. I mean, he's a genius. Yeah. 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 No, and the the, the give and take between the two of you is is fantastic here. Um, what do you make it? And and uh, the the real Norman is still alive. And, yeah. and I've seen uh, you know several times he's said that he didn't necessarily love the portrayal of himself, but at the same time, he's still a little upset that he hasn't gotten his insurance card after all this time. I haven't met him, but he is quite changeable. Uh, <laughs> he was shown the, the, the series after it was cut together and loved it. And then suddenly, two weeks later, was in the newspapers saying, I hate the way I'm portrayed. So I, he was quite Norman about the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. I was going to say, very, very public, very yeah. uh, outspoken, yeah. and, and managing to get the, the cameras going and, and the press going. So this guy still got it. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and none of you could help him get a card? I know. I know. But there was a very good reason why Thorpe didn't get him that card. Well, in fact, history tells us Thorpe did get him a card, but, but uh, Norman deliberately lost it. Because without it, he had no... Um, no grievance. No story. Right. Yeah, yeah. No reason to go on plaguing Jeremy. And of course, some would say he was plaguing him partly out of love. They, they were in love. And, and if you watch the next two episodes, I hope that sort of emerges, really. And that is something that comes up from time to time. You realize that both of these men are still deeply in love, but they just can't be together. And that's the tragedy. Yeah. That's part of the tragedy of the story. Yes, yes. And that makes it much more interesting, I think, the whole thing, if, they, if there really was love between them. And it wasn't just uh, an entitled man using a sort of stable boy. Yeah. Well, what, um, what, what kind of responsibility in playing a real-life character do you, do you, do you have? When, when you research, when you, when you uh, play someone who actually existed uh, as an actor, what, what are some of the, the responsibilities you feel you have? There are responsibilities, I suppose, in the sense that um, there's people still alive like Jeremy's son, who uh, Thorpe's son, I think, lives here in L.A., He's a paparazzi, did you know that? No, yes. he lives here in L.A. Do you remember? Is he the, in this room? He might be. The whole brouhaha around Michael Douglas's wedding to Catherine Zeta-Jones when they had a deal, I think, with one of those celebrity magazines, Hello or OK, and pictures appeared in the rival magazine, and they were secretly taken by a pap at the wedding. And it was Jeremy Thorpe's son. Wow. Yes. So that's the sequel. That's the sequel. <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's open it up to audience Q&A. As kindly suggested down here, we have some people roaming with microphones. So I see a hand up over here. So why don't we start with, with you? Hi. Loved it. Um, so we are used to seeing you as the romantic comedy man. What was it like to be a, an asshole in this one? Like to, to regroup to play somebody who had... Um, 
murder on your mind? Well, it's very comforting. Uh, I, if you if you'd ever spoken to Richard Curtis about um, the character I played in Four Weddings and Notting Hill and Love Actually, even though we pretended they were all different characters, let's face it, they were pretty similar. Uh, they were all him. He's a very, very nice man. He spends half his life uh, working from Africa and for the starving and comic relief and all that. Uh, and I was playing him, but I was playing him. I'm, I'm not him. It always amused him that people thought, oh, he's this nice person. I, I'm, I, I'm much more comfortable with murder. How do we follow up that? We have a question over here. I shouldn't need a mic, I'm an actress. <laughs> I just want to tell you, I think it's just fantastic. You were absolutely marvelous. I, I think the way that you speak, the way, what you do with your mouth and your face is really incredible. Um, the, the program is extremely interesting and the, the other actors are simply marvelous. It's very exciting. I didn't expect it to be. Now I, I can't wait to go home and watch the next two. And I want to tell you that you are still so very handsome. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, question over here. I'd just like to note that um, you also still have the younger crowd thinking you're handsome. Um, and <laughs> no, but before we were interrupted by the group Q&A, what are the responsibilities of playing someone who is alive or someone who their children are alive? Yeah, I, 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 I suppose the, the, the biggest question was, uh, is it all right to portray him as a murderer <laughs> when he did get off at the Old Bailey? He, oh, shit, I've just spoiled the whole series for you. Um, but, well, uh, Google it. It doesn't really spoil it to know that, but he, uh, you know, that's that's the big thing. And of course, that wasn't just a worry for an actor in terms of responsibility, but for the BBC in case they were going to get sued. But but funnily enough, the family seemed to be all right with him being portrayed as a someone who did in fact uh, order a murder. Uh, I was slightly frightened of a few of his political friends. I, I met a, an enormous amount of his friends and colleagues and asked them about him. And there were a few who were really hardcore supporters of him and said, uh, Jeremy would never have hurt a fly. He's a lovely, charming man. But then there were a significant number of others who said, oh, no, no, he was deeply creepy. <laughs> and at first that really, I thought, how, how do I match those two? And then uh, that's the whole fun of it. He was both. Uh, and, and I love that. I like, like that about people. Um, they have the capabilities to be, you know, charming and nice and giving and loving. I think he was a very loving father. I, actually, funnily enough, a loving husband, even though he gets married for very cynical reasons. But at the same time, utterly ruthless, narcissistic, cold-blooded. Well, you know, and it, interestingly, in, in watching this and thinking about, like, resonance to today and what's going on right now, we, we, we see that right now with, with certain, you know, for example, the, the recent Supreme Court hearings where there is this dichotomy of someone who's able to hide behind power and wealth and, and, uh, and, and prestige in order to cover up some pretty heinous things. Yes, I think, I, I'm, I'm not a complete expert on your whole Kavanaugh thing, but uh, just the bits I saw, 
it did look like he, he came from a similar world, the American version of the world that Philip came from. Right, right, right. And able to sort of... Uh, to, uh, on the there's one... a sense of outrage that they could even be questioned. Right, yeah. Right, right. There's this entitlement. Yes. We got some more questions? Hi. Um, I'm wondering, how did it feel to take on such an important story for the LGBTQIA plus community and be in such a different time where, you know, and then what were the similarities to how, you know, all of that is perceived today? Well, it was, this was a big thing for Russell Tavis, who wrote it. He's uh, a gay man who uh, is very big on um, gay rights, the history of the gay movement. And um, that's why there's a, quite a long excursion within this first episode, which you could argue is slightly off plot, into the uh, beginnings, the, the very charming beginnings of, of the legalization of homosexuality in Britain. Um, you know, led by that extraordinary lord, what's his name? I can't remember. With his badger collection. With the badgers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it is amazing. It's amazing how far we came in, in, in 20 years uh, through the 60s and 70s. Now, you know, as a kid in the 60s, I remember my parents had that attitude, and they weren't nasty people at all. But they said, no, darling, I mean, it's, a, it's a horrid thing. We don't talk about it. And then, you know, by the time they were in their uh, 70s, it was a completely different attitude. So it's amazing uh, the ground that was covered. That's a great question. Uh, I think we have one over here. Hello. Um, you know, when the opening scene happened and you were sitting there, I actually didn't recognize you because I was like, oh, my kind of looks like him, but not really. The makeup that they did on you was so fantastic. How does that apply when you're getting into character? I mean, do you need, when they put that on you, is that when, that's like the final touch, and you're like, okay, I'm ready to go work. Well, no, it was much earlier than that. When they offered me the script, um, the only little prima donna demand I made was I said, I, I, I will only do this if Daniel Phillips does the makeup, who was a guy I'd worked with before, and I knew he'd done amazing work on, uh, you know, with Judy Dench and, 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 and people, you know, creating historical characters with, with actors and actresses without shoving tons of prosthetics on them, which just makes, you know, then it becomes a kind of comedy sketch. But just doing a few little things that nod towards the character so that you can still sort of create it yourself. And uh, yeah, he did amazing things with me, amazing. Uh, he hollowed my cheeks, he gave me more sort of jowl. Um, he, he, he got me these brown contact lenses. And then this terrible hair. <laughs> and uh, that was very exciting, because that was du during the whole process of trying to work out who he was and how I was going to play him. I'd have these experimental sessions with, with Daniel, and suddenly, ping, you know, he's there, and staring you in the mirror, and I'd start to do the voice, and that was very exciting. So again, thank you so much, and go home and watch the rest of this tonight.
And that's it for this edition of Turn It On. Join us again next week, and be sure to subscribe to Turn It On on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere you download podcasts. Also, head on over to IndieWire.com for your daily fix of TV news, analysis, and reviews. And while there, sign up for our daily TV newsletter. I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll turn it on again next time.